I love being outdoors. I love being with my animals. I like a hundred different hats and spinning plates going on at the same time. So, you know, at the moment we've got we've got so many different uh, projects on farm right now that it, it sort of makes your mind melt a little bit, but I really thrive in that environment. This is The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. Jake Wolke and his wife Anne run Wolke Farm and Butchery in Albury, New South Wales. They started the farm in 2019 on a hobby block that his dad used for conventional cattle. Things changed very quickly, thanks to YouTube rabbit holes and a deepening commitment to doing things differently. The Wolkies farm according to five principles, animal welfare, environmental backbone, healing food, community and profit. It's been a radical life shift for Jake, from fast food and poor health to regenerative farming and vitality. He couldn't love it more. My name's Jake Wolke. Uh, my wife Anne and I own Wolke Farm, where we uh, raise beef, pork, chicken, lamb, eggs, honey. Uh, we do some value adds like preserves and pickles, uh, that sort of thing. We sell everything direct to market and everything that we have gets processed through Wolke Butchery, which we purchased in 2021 to help us with our processing. Wolke Farm is spread out over three leased properties at the moment. We don't own any uh, agricultural land currently. The only freehold asset of the business is the butchery. Uh, our home farm is in Aubrey. New South Wales, which is river flats down uh, along the Murray River. So, you know, flat, highly fertile, uh, underwater a lot at the moment with the last couple of seasons that we have. And that's the main property where we have our farm tours and the events that we host. So that's where we have all of our intensive farming. You'll see all of our chickens out on pasture, the pigs down in the silvo pasture uh, on the back of the farm. And yeah, there's a lot going on there. It's pretty jam-packed. Jake Wolke wasn't planning to be a farmer. In fact, he was more or less allergic to being outdoors. He explains how a health crisis sent him on the road to being on the land. I didn't grow up on land. Uh, my family's a retail family. We, we've had stores for three generations, you know, selling you know, knickknacks and jeans and we had music shops and, and uh, gift shops. We used to have a, my family used to have a store in Aubrey here selling basketball cards and, and, you know, American sports memorabilia. We've done a whole lot of different things. I left school end of year 10 to work for my father in his record store that he had at the time. And the way we got into farming really was through a food healing journey. I've been plagued with uh, respiratory issues and uh, you know skin uh, eczema styled issues basically my whole life uh, when, you know I'd be seven or eight years old and I'd wake up in bed and I'd call out for my father and our morning ritual was that he'd come into the bedroom and peel the sheets off my legs because I'd scratch my legs in my sleep because they were itchy and they'd start bleeding and then the sheets would stick to me um, I've been through the absolute ringer trying to sort out my allergies I, I used to go to Melbourne monthly to get desensitization shots you know they did the swab test on me and i was allergic to grass pollen cats dust hair sweat you know basically everything you need to be around to function especially as a farmer i was allergic to and it really came to a head about five years ago 
2018 or so, I, I went to my GP and I said, look, these these respiratory allergies and this hay fever is really just ruining my life. I, I'm spending days on the couch uh, when I should be at work. We, we've just had our firstborn child and I struggle to go outside. It really, it was so bad it was debilitating. And at that time, I was on three different scripts. I was on a script for eye drops tablet and uh, nose spray. And I said to her, one of my friends got the steroid injection and he said it helped him manage his symptoms. So give it to me. And she said, no, I won't. And I, I sort of fought with her a little bit about it. And she said, look, you're young and healthy. These steroid shots, they can thin your bones. They, they ruin your metabolism. It'll, it'll ruin everything in your guts. And um, I'm, I'm really appreciative to that doctor that she sort of slowed me down a little bit. But I, I, I kept pushing her into a corner. And then she ended up writing me heavier scripts you know, for, for the three medications I mentioned earlier. And, and at that point, I'd been on script meds for those things for years and I went down to the pharmacy I still remember exactly where it was it was a pharmacist on High Street in Wodonga and I cashed in my new scripts and the pharmacist said oh this nose spray you know inhaler thing that you've just cashed in it's a pretty strong one and I sort of just said whatever mate you know I was in a bad mood well, if you've ever had hay fever you know how you become pretty irritable and I ripped it out of the box Gave it a shake and I, I did two squirts up each nostril like you meant to before I'd even left the pharmacist. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. As I stepped over the threshold of the store, both my nostrils opened up and I just had blood pouring down my chest like someone had turned a tap on. You know, the, the inhaler was so strong that it's just given me a blood nose on both nostrils and I was laying down on the side of the street trying to plug my nose. And I got home and just said to my wife, this is an absolute nonsense. You know, I'm, I'm doing everything I'm meant to be doing. I'm, I'm going to the doctor. I'm cashing my scripts. I'm taking the meds. And my wife being the uh, patient, uh, wise woman that she is, she said, well, you know, is it about time to start looking at your diet? Because at that point, I'd, I'd love to have a ice break, ice coffee for breakfast and follow it up with a Chinese noodle bowl for lunch or some KFC or something. And, and I was really eating a lot of rubbish. Uh, because it tasted good it it gave me the hit I wanted while I was eating it and I didn't care at all about feeling boggy or lethargic or being a bit overweight as a result and I never really connected my allergies to it but my wife's very healthy and very in tune and she took me on this journey and I started feeling a lot better so we started organic gardening in our backyard here in suburbia because we live in town currently and I was really enjoying that and I was spending a lot of time on YouTube watching different organic gardeners and getting tricks about no-till gardening and permaculture and all these fun things and just through going down the YouTube rabbit hole I stumbled across a video of the uh, uh, Joel Salatin, you know, very famous farmer in America who I hadn't heard of uh, up to that point and I just watched this video of him talking about the chickens and the cows and the pigs on his farm and it was so... Um, romantic and everything he said made so much sense in regards to stewarding our environment, caring for animals, uh, nourishing our bodies and our communities uh, that I thought I want to have a go at that. So my dad had a hobby block out of town and I asked him if I could lease a couple acres off him and I put a couple cows and some chickens in a caravan and started pushing them around with a bit of um, poly wire and trying to copy Joel Salatin's systems and just for our own personal consumption and that was 2019. We don't like to do things slowly, we sort of really like to jump in 
full steam. So as, as soon as I realized that, hey, there's a business opportunity here and there was no, I, it just really tickled me. Like I said, my family's been doing, um, you know, direct-to-consumer retail businesses for over 50 years in Australia, but I really loved the whole system with the regenerative farming because you were in, I was incorporating everything. There was no externalized costs. There was no subsidies. And what I mean by that was I was able to sell meat to people and it, it, the, I was giving the animals a better life than a factory farm situation. The land was being restored, you know, uh, in when you compare it to a traditional, you know, high pesticide, high fungicide farming situation. I was providing better nourishment for people like everything was just tick 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 and I just thought to myself this feels good on every level so let's just get into it I needed to do it the Walkie hobby block isn't considered big enough to be truly productive as a farm Jake explains how things used to be how he shifted the approach and the family dynamics negotiated along the way well the you know my father's lifestyle block which is just on the outskirts here in Albury which is our main lease now is 100 acres so 40 hectares and everyone in, in farming knows that you know 40 hectares is a, is a horse block you know it's not productive enough to do anything um, and dad would just buy 30 or 40 steers every year and the farm was cut up into five big paddocks and he'd move them around every couple of weeks and just do the you know stock standard uh, way that Aussies generally farm. He's one of his good mates is a stock agent. So he'd tell dad, you know, I'm going to come next week and drench them all, put them in the yards for me, or the market's good. I'm going to sell them now because they're fat, whatever it was. And the, the main involvement that my uh, family, my parents had was mum would just say to dad, I don't want to look out the back window and see black cows next year. Get me some brown ones or get me some white ones. So, so really the, the depth of it for us was we just picked the color for the window, <laughs> for the side out the window. And, but it was still a very conventional farm. Cows could walk into the ponds and pee and poo while they drank. Uh, we hadn't really planted any trees on the property. We were spraying. So dad had a contractor that did a bit of broadleaf spray early on. And then as the weeds were a bit more under control in a traditional context. He started doing a little bit of spot spraying. And so when I said to dad, I'm going to do everything organic and we're going to use no chemicals and the animals are going to do the work for us and we're going to have to hire labor and then we're going to add pigs and we're going to get uh, more chickens. And, uh, you know, dad early on was a bit of a skeptic and he just saw a lot of work in it for me and it, it pulled me away from the other businesses. I, I own a bicycle shop that has a cafe inside of it in town in partnership with my parents. So uh, dad was happy for me to play farmer, but as it took more and more of my uh, time, it, it pulled me away from the bike shop a little bit, which was just something that we had to work through. But yeah, I guess they were a little bit skeptical about the practices, but you know, we're four years down the track now and, and the proof's in the pudding because the, the farm's a thriving uh, little hub of uh, fertility and biodiversity and, and there's a lot of different things happening there and it's you know our farm business is supporting four full-time salaries you know plus a bit at the moment uh, and, and that's the only intensive property the other two properties I lease uh, just grow out our our cattle wieners so it's you know the bulk of what we're doing really is just off that hundred acres. When YouTube is your biggest teacher there are going to be a bunch of real life lessons farming throws at you. Jake shares some of the ups and downs. Well, there's, yeah, there's constantly 
uh, new things to contend with on the farm with our learning experience. You know, the first year was very dry and we had the bushfires in, in, in the region here in 2019. So we're battling with um, heat and really thick smoke and, you know, trying to um, carry the animals through all of that. And then the last couple of years has been flood and we're constantly, uh, because all of our animals and all of our systems are pasture based and, and portable, we've got all these uh, eggmobiles we call them where the, the chickens are in these caravans I build for them and they get towed around the paddocks and you know the broilers the meat birds are in these big prairie schooners it looks like a hoop house like a worm tunnel on pasture and they get moved every day and because we're on river flats we're constantly having to uh, re-innovate and, and reinvent the wheel and come up with new systems to manage different um, you know weather patterns and that's just the weather let alone what the market decides to do different animals that we've started uh, breeding in the in the beginning we were just stocking so we'd buy in yearling steers and put a bit of weight on them and then put them through the butchery but uh, since the market's changed and our values have changed a little bit we've started breeding uh, cattle and sheep now uh, we breed dogs for the pet market as well uh, standard schnauzers that I've imported from Europe so and you know it's massive learning curves all the time trying to get yourself into a breeding cycle and understand what you're trying to breed to juggling animals of different uh, ages and you know there's heaps going on but this is I, I really think this is uh, one of the reasons why it's so fun we've got so many spinning plates with so many variables that it's it'd be very hard to complain about a boring and mundane life with it all going on that's for sure Aussies love lamb but Jacob Walke wasn't enamoured of the woolly bleater after relenting and buying some merino crosses, he explains how the lambs taught him a lot about animal welfare. I, uh, I didn't want to do lamb. I had no interest in, in doing sheep. I really enjoy cattle. Uh, pigs are so much fun. Chicken make a lot of sense for what we want to do. And I just thought lamb's another grass-eating herbivore to try to squeeze into my system. And my farmhand at the time, <coughs> pardon me, Michael Husky, came off sheep properties. And he kept saying sheep, sheep, sheep. So I, I purchased some uh, wieners uh, and, you know, 20 kilo little lambs. And we were moving them around the farm, doing our grazing. And when I processed them through the butchery, I was absolutely blown away how well it sold. It was, you know, my, growing up, we never ate much lamb. So I didn't really understand Australia's affinity and connection with lamb as a protein. <laughs> I get it now. And I eat it myself and it's delicious. So I really get it now. But those lambs I, I grazed they'd been on on pasture on our farm that had never had sheep on it for you know the 20 years my parents have owned it and before that it was a dairy so I dare say it had never had sheep on it for decades and decades we were moving them to fresh pasture three four times a week they were never getting into water systems uh, so they weren't able to urinate in water and then drink it and they were still getting worms I had a hundred lambs and 20% of them still got wormy <laughs> and it really sort of confused me because all the gurus and all of our systems that we do with our pigs and cattle, if you keep them moving quick enough and keep them out of water, they won't get worms and you won't have to drench them. And it really sent me down a journey of, I guess, uh, broadening my mind as to what animal welfare is. And this has, been, been, this has since become something I'm really uh, passionate about because I believe to have the highest level of animal welfare, you need to start with animals that were fit for purpose. See, the 100 lambs I had on my farm, they were merino crosses and merino sheep 
as great as they are for all their beautiful wool they give us, they've never been bred uh, in, in, the, in the history of, I guess, modern agriculture to have the trait of being parasite resistant. They've been bred for high surface area, which gives them wrinkly skin, so you get more wool growing, so you can clip more wool off them. They're being bred for softer wool. Uh, they're being bred for fertility, but it's well known within the industry that they, they don't have great parasite resistance. So I was trying to do organic farming, and I didn't want to help my animals with drenches because we're a chemical-free farm, but then my animals were suffering in the paddock with, with worms. Uh, and so what I ended up uh, finding through you know quite a bit of research and a little bit of trial and error was a shedding composite of a sheep called Catalyst, developed by a local farmer here, Freshwater, and they're they're brilliant because they're for our context, which is unimproved pastures. You know they they're just eating the natural pasture in the field. We're not going to sow down. Uh, rye or oats for them we're just going to manage our grass and whatever grows they can eat they're thriving on it a lot of sheep need a really um, high me or high protein diet in them uh, because they've been optimized to uh, you know breed and grow so quick that they struggle without that smorgasbord of protein in front of them but our sheep are just thriving on whatever's growing and they're they're rough and ready they don't need help with the with the parasites because they've been developed uh, without needing their handheld with it so um, you know that's the current uh, little breed of sheep that we're we're working with at the moment, and I really think that it's it's better for the animal and better for the lamb to start with an animal that's fit for purpose. Because if we now obey those principles of of you know good pasture management with fast animal rotations, keep them out of the water, we're all of a sudden not needing to use drenches anymore. So we're back to a you know a, a chemical free solution without the animals having to suffer in the interim. When you grow animals for meat with a very particular ethical mindset, it can be tricky to find the right partners along the supply chain. Jake explains his journey to a butcher shop that has no one serving, but plenty of happy customers. Well, being a direct-to-market farm, we, we, we sell meat, we don't sell animals. And of course, there's a, there's a chain of command and custody that needs to be obeyed to comply with uh, state regulations to sell meat and it needs to go to a slaughterhouse, a, a local abattoir, and then it needs to go to a, a boning room, a butchery. And I was using local butchers to do my cut and process so they'd receive my carcasses from the abattoir and they'd cut it to our specs. But there was a lot of challenges around that. You know, I, the butchers didn't like the way I, I wanted to do things because we were I had one butcher tell me that I was going to kill people because I wanted to make bacon that was preservative free. And in with the way that the trade is now trained and the experience these guys have, we've lost all of these old world skills and techniques and preservatives to them are just the only way to do it. And so I was, I was really pushing it uphill, uh, not to even mention the inconsistency with packaging um, and the lack of volume capacity that these butchers had. You know, they're busy filling up their own glass cabinet, which pays the bills and services their customers. So what we were trying to do was really an afterthought for them. And very early on, we're only a year or two into the journey, my wife and I just saw the writing on the wall that we'd have to take processing into our own hands. <laughs> so we purchased a freehold here in Aubrey. It was a local butcher called Peterson Sons. It had been in business for over 70 years. Uh, he'd closed the store, sold all the equipment, and the building had been sitting on the market a little while for sale, and we made an offer on that, and we got it. 
we renovated it and filled it up with new equipment and hired a butcher who in the beginning he worked two days a week in the butchery processing you know my beef and pork and whatever else I had and then he'd spend two days a week in my bike shop building bicycles for me and then he'd spend a day on the week uh, on the farm I was just making up jobs I, I said I called the neighbors once and I said can I send my guy into your paddock just to slash all those weeds for you because we've got nothing for him to do and, you know fast forward two and a half three years down the track and we've got two full-time butchers uh, a part-time packer and myself in the store there most days uh, keeping up with production we're offering custom processing for about a dozen other local farmers so now other farmers that want to take their uh, beef or lamb direct to market like we're doing we can now fill that gap that we couldn't find uh, for them offering them uh, availability like real capacity consistency and packaging and labeling preservative free uh, sausage production or whatever they need I, I never intended to open a retail part of that butchery. It was really just a production facility for me. I didn't want to open retail for a few reasons. One was I didn't want another roster to worry about. Opens and closes, lunch breaks, annual leave, all of this sort of stuff. And, and not to mention that our production, the first year of owning the butchery, I think was we were guessing the first 12 months was the farm was going to generate about 450 grand's worth of meat. So it wasn't enough meat to justify having somebody stand in a retail butchery, you know, serving people, you know, minimum wage, you know, the salary there'd be $60,000 a year. Not even to mention that all the produce that we were um, growing was already pre-sold elsewhere. We were already getting rid of it direct to consumer or to our local organic supermarkets or whatever it was. Uh, so we, we just had no no intention of opening up the the front of the house, but customers kept asking for it. And one local uh, small goods producer, Anthony at uh, Murray River Smokehouse, I was in store talking to him, trying to pick his brain about preservative free bacon and things. And he said to me, "When are you opening up that shop front of yours?" And I said, "Oh, never. It's you know, it's just going to sit there empty. We're just processing out the back." And this was in November of. Uh, 21 I believe and he looked at me and he said you'll have it open by March and I left that store and I thought bugger you Anthony because now he'd given me this goalpost and now that he'd spoken that into me I couldn't stop thinking about it so I got pen on paper back of an envelope we do um we do immigrant profit and losses so we find a, an old empty envelope floating around the house and we scratch the numbers down on the back and I thought the only way it's ever going to work is if there's no staff and the only way I can see it working with no staff is if it was a vending machine so I spent a lot of time on the internet researching vending machines which there are vending machines around the world uh, even refrigerated and, and frozen ones for meat specifically but they are extraordinarily expensive uh, very large and largely unavailable in Australia so we'd be looking at an import process which just didn't match where our business was at so I thought I just need to build it myself so I hodgepodged, I'm not super technically minded, but I hodgepodged a few different systems, a few different security systems together. I found a software system in America, uh, and now we have a 24-7 staffless butchery with you know, about 300 members uh, doing anywhere from four to $7,000 turnover per week, completely staffless out the front. So the way it works is if people want to become a member, we request that they come into a farm tour first, the membership doesn't cost anything, but we want them to really come on the farm, you know, see the place, audit us. We believe, um, don't trust, verify, don't, you know, the label says free range, but what 
what does that free range mean? So we're trying to encourage our consumers not to trust the label, but to verify the origin of the product. So come on our farm and verify us. When they've come and verified us, we give them a code to the building. So they turn up and it's like a gym. They can put their unique code in, gain access to the building. They're inside now. There's all these display freezers full of Cryvac labeled portioned meat. They pull their phone out and there's an app on their smartphone that they download. Then they scan all the barcoded price tags on all the uh, packets of meat. They hit pay and the payment comes to me through Stripe, an online bank, and then they let themselves out of the building and all the while they're under uh, video surveillance and it just ticks along like that all, all week long. So that's been operating for over two years like that and we've had, uh, we've had no theft. We've had no issues with the door being left open. No one's left a freezer door open. You know, it, it, it's really been a... Uh, fairy tale operation. There's been nothing that's gone wrong, and I really believe that's because we're a, we're a value-driven business. Uh, we're not marketing on taste. We're marketing on welfare, environmental um, stewardship, all all these other community engaging sort of values that we have, and we're attracting the people that want to be a part of that and that respect it. So you know, they're they're very respectful when they're in the um, facility, and they're, they're glad to have access to it. Jake Walkie has found a cattle breed that lights him up. He shares his excitement for Nguni. Are they the future of Australian beef? One other uh, animal that I'm extremely excited about on our property is our Nguni cattle that we're raising. So that's spelt N-G-U-N-I. Uh, we, on my journey of trying to find a fit-for-purpose cow, we came across this breed. There's a farmer up at Gundaroo, Edwin Roos, who has sold me his uh, a few bulls and a few cows, and I was just so passionate about them. They're such an incredible animal. Uh, my social media is full of uh, images and, and videos of them. They're they're a small framed, early maturing, highly fertile animal. They've got big horns and colourful hides. They're, they're extremely efficient on um, rank pastures. So you know, if you have a lot of dry feed in summer, these guys just they're like goats. They've actually got a lot of uh, physiological similarities to goats, goats, strangely enough. So they're able to really thrive in the arid environment like that, which is us for four months of the year. Like our summers are extremely brittle here. Um, so, you know, that's a big a big push for our future is trying to uh, facilitate the rollout of those genetics to whoever wants them around Australia because we really believe that there are... We're doing a lot of data testing at the moment, actually, on the nutrient density of, of the meat, and we want to start testing the actual footprint of this cow because we believe that they're more efficient, so they're going to be a, a, a more environmentally uh, beneficial uh, cow. So, yeah, Nguni cattle, watch this space. There's a big takeover happening. From lying on the pavement with blood streaming from his nose to feeling strong, fit and focused, Jake Walkie's journey to health has been transformative. Now it's time to spread the word about healing food. Well, my health has turned around night and day. It's been a journey. I don't believe in quick fixes. Uh, we've we've learned that lesson and I've, I've lost a lot of weight. I've probably lost 15 kilos without really dieting just by changing my lifestyle. Uh, I have absolutely no uh, skin issues like I used to. You know, I used to be scratching everywhere and I used to have dermatitis in between all my fingers and behind my knees and my elbow. I was, I was, sometimes when I tell this story, I really wonder why my wife married me. I was a snotty, rashy mess. Um, but all the skin's completely cleared now. I battle with hay fever allergies a little bit 
during the absolute worst of the season, but nothing debilitating like it used to be. My allergies to things like uh, cats and dust and hair and all of those seem all but gone. And I just, I feel a lot stronger. Uh, I've, I've got more energy. I'm able to focus better. You know, we, we've transitioned our diet as a family to uh, reasonably protein heavy. So we we eat a lot of meat uh, and then, you know, a bit of fruit, yeah, honey and eggs and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, we're, we're all, we're all thriving. We, I do, I do a lot of tours on my property. We have farm tours. We open it up for schools and other special interest groups as well as the public and something I always ask the primary school children, because we talk about our food being healing food, we've got our five pillars of production on the farm and pillar number three is to produce healing food for our communities. And I think when I talk about healing food, people's eyes glaze over because it sounds a bit woo-woo. Um, and one of my favourite way to explain it to children is, uh, who here has eaten KFC before? Not to rubbish KFC, because all the fast food places are the same as far as I'm concerned. And all the kids shoot their arms up and I said, and who loves it? Who thinks it tastes fantastic? And they all shoot their arms up. They all think it's great. And I said, and after you eat KFC, put your hand up if you need to lay on the couch because you're really tired and you don't feel like doing anything for a couple of hours. And they all shoot their hands up. These are energetic young children, six years old, eight years old, 10 years old. And they've identified that when they're eating these foods, it bogs them down. And I say to them, kids, food's energy. We're not meant to eat food and then feel like rubbish and have to make an allowance for our body to digest it. You should be eating food and then being energized and getting out. So then I'll see a child in the group eating a banana and I'll say, after you eat that banana, do you feel like going down and having a sleep? What do you want to get on the oval? And they said, well, we want to, we want to go and have fun. We want to go and play, you know, and, and just drawing these little connections with these um, children about the power of food is, is so exciting. So it's made an enormous difference in, in, in my life and I, I constantly have feedback from our community about the way our foods impacted their lives. You know, a, a massive one is that there's a huge amount of people out there that can't eat pork. It gives them indigestion, uh, stomach cramps, diarrhea, skin rashes, heartburn, all these crazy things. And I'd never heard, you don't hear about this unless you ask people, you know, it's not sort of dinner table conversation. And my wife and I experienced that before we started consuming it and farming our own pasture-raised pork as well. But now when I engage with the community about this, the amount of people that couldn't eat pork because it gave them all the aforementioned um, ailments and then they've tried my pork and it's just getting on with business. They feel great. They feel like they've just had a steak or an egg or whatever it is and they get on with it. it it's, it's so validating to me because I really believe that by addressing the animal's uh, welfare and farming it in its context to its natural expression, which is being outside for starters and not being drug addicts uh, for runner-ups, that the the food's different and people are able to uh, thrive on it instead of instead of fighting and, and you know, f- feeling worse for consuming it in the first place. Farming can be solitary, but Walkie Farm is built as a community business, embedded in its region and with customers known by name and encouraged to visit the farm to see where their food comes from. Well, when you get... When you start researching farming and reading the books and falling into the little regenerative ag, ag clicks that are on forums and, and you know social media groups and stuff, it, it's really easy to get swept up with all the with all the homesteaders and you know and we love all that you know we we, we love milking a house cow and growing our own food, but just through watching, I feel like a lot of 
a lot of that community gets very isolated. You know, they're, they're so focused on um, independence and, you know, almost uh, prepping to a degree. And, and that's completely the opposite of what we're striving towards. You know, we're a, we're a community-centric business. You know, we need people to want our produce uh, for our business to survive. But beyond that, you know, we're social animals. We... we we need community like we we want we want friends and family to be around us i heard a quote a long time ago that your friends won't become your customers but your customers will become your friends and i've found that true time and time again across time and and across industry so my wife and i've picked up a great uh circle of friends through our farming journey and you know we, we sort of feel like all of you know nearly everyone that buys meat off us we know by name you know we know when they've had another child and that might not always be the case as the business scales but we we love how uh how involved and i just like how lovely the community has been that's drawn to the product that we're trying to create there are so many different aspects to life at walkie farm the variety can be a little mind melting Jake explains what he loves about what he does. Oh, there's, there's so many things, but I've always been a big animal lover. In high school, we had a careers teacher ask everybody what they wanted to do. And when, when they leave school, this might have been year nine. And I said, oh, I'm going to go work for my father. And she barred me from using that answer. She said, that's a, that's a cop out. You can do better, you know, which my father took issue with that statement. And um, you have to think about it, come back with something else. So I thought about it. I thought, well, I like, I really like animals. I've always had pet dogs. I used to breed rabbits when I was little in my in our backyard. I used to sell them to the local pet shop, have fish and hermit crabs. I always loved having animals around. So I said, I'm going to become a vet because I love animals. And that, for the sake of that exercise, I'm going to become a vet. And I went home and spoke to dad about it. And he said, what do you want to be a vet for? I said, well, it's just for the exercise, but I like animals. He said, oh, so you want to be around sick animals all day. And I thought, you know, that's right. Vets have a rough time in front of them sometimes. You know, they're, they're putting animals to sleep and they're dealing with animals and all these. Yeah, they get to heal them back, but that's not always the case. And I told the vet that. I said, no, nah, I've given up on, I told the teacher, sorry, I've given up on the vet exercise because they're just around sick animals all the time. It's not for me. No one ever said, well, what about farming where you can be around healthy animals all the time? So I love being outdoors. I love being with my animals. And like I said earlier, I like a hundred different hats and spinning plates going on at the same time. So, you know, at the moment we've got, we've got so many different uh, projects on farm right now that it, it sort of makes your mind melt a little bit, but I really thrive in that environment. There's never a dull moment at Walkie Farm. Jake has many plates spinning and a bunch more he's yet to bring out of the cupboard. It's been a swift and momentous five-year shift from sickness and town life to vital energy and work on the land. Along the way, Jake has built community, made friends of his customers and developed a strong set of principles that drive an ethical, contemporary and fun suite of businesses. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.